Chapter Twenty Four of the Blythedale Romance. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Blythedale Romance by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Chapter Twenty Four: The Masqueraders. Two nights had passed since the foregoing occurrences, when, in a breezy September forenoon, I set forth from town on foot towards Blythedale. It was the most delightful of all days for a walk, with a dash of invigorating ice temper in the air, but a coolness that soon gave place to the brisk glow of exercise, while the vigor remained as elastic as before. The atmosphere had a spirit and a sparkle in it. Each breath was like a sip of ethereal wine, tempered, as I said, with a crystal lump of ice. I had started on this expedition in an exceedingly sombre mood, as well befitted one who found himself tending towards home, but was conscious that nobody would be quite overjoyed to greet him there. My feet were hardly off the pavement, however, when this morbid sensation began to yield to the lively influences of air and motion. Nor had I gone far, with the fields yet green on either side, before my step became as swift and light as if Hollingsworth were waiting to exchange a friendly hand grip, and Zenobia's and Priscilla's open arms would welcome the wanderer's reappearance. It has happened to me on other occasions as well as this to prove how a state of physical well-being can create a kind of joy in spite of the profoundest anxiety of mind. The pathway of that walk still runs along with sunny freshness through my memory. I know not why it should be so, but my mental eye can even now discern the September grass bordering the pleasant roadside with a brighter verdure than while the summer heats were scorching it. The trees, too, mostly green, although here and there a branch or shrub has donned its vesture of crimson and gold a week or two before its fellows. I see the tufted barberry bushes with their small clusters of scarlet fruit, the toadstools likewise, some spotlessly white, others yellow or red, mysterious growths, springing suddenly from no root or seed and growing nobody can tell how or wherefore in this respect they resembled many of the emotions in my breast and i still see the little rivulets chill clear and bright that murmured beneath the road through subterranean rocks and deepened into mossy pools where tiny fish were darting to and fro and within which lurked the hermit frog but no, I never can account for it that, with a yearning interest to learn the upshot of all my story, and returning to Blythedale for that sole purpose, I should examine these things so like a peaceful-bosomed naturalist, nor why, amid all my sympathies and fears, there shot at times a wild exhilaration through my frame. Thus I pursued my way along the line of the ancient stone wall that Paul Dudley built, and through white villages, and past orchards of ruddy apples, and fields of ripening maize, and patches of woodland, and all such sweet rural scenery as looks the fairest a little beyond the suburbs of a town. Hollingsworth, Zenobia, Priscilla, they glided mistily before me as I walked. Sometimes in my solitude I laughed with the bitterness of self-scorn, remembering how unreservedly I had given up my heart and soul to interests that were not mine. 
what had I ever had to do with them? And why, being now free, should I take this thraldom on me once again? It was both sad and dangerous, I whispered to myself, to be in too close affinity with the passions, the errors, and the misfortunes of individuals who stood within a circle of their own, into which, if I stepped at all, it must be as an intruder, and at a peril that I could not estimate. Drawing nearer to Blythedale, a sickness of the spirits kept alternating with my flights of causeless buoyancy. I indulged in a hundred odd and extravagant conjectures. Either there was no such place as Blythedale, nor ever had been, nor any brotherhood of thoughtful laborers like what I seemed to recollect there, or else it was all changed during my absence. It had been nothing but dream-work and enchantment. I should seek in vain for the old farmhouse, and for the greensward, the potato-fields, the root-crops, and acres of Indian corn, and for all that configuration of the land which I had imagined. It would be another spot, and an utter strangeness. These vagaries were of the spectral throng so apt to steal out of an unquiet heart. They partly ceased to haunt me on my arriving at a point whence, through the trees, I began to catch glimpses of the Blythedale farm. That surely was something real. There was hardly a square foot of all those acres on which I had not trodden heavily in one or another kind of toil. The curse of Adam's posterity, and curse or blessing be it, it gives substance to the life around us, had first come upon me there. In the sweat of my brow I had there earned bread and eaten it, and so established my claim to be on earth, and my fellowship with all the sons of labor. I could have knelt down and have laid my breast against that soil. The red clay of which my frame was molded seemed nearer akin to those crumbling furrows than to any other portion of the world's dust. There was my home, and there might be my grave." I felt an invincible reluctance, nevertheless, at the idea of presenting myself before my old associates, without first ascertaining the state in which they were. A nameless foreboding weighed upon me. Perhaps, should I know all the circumstances that had occurred, I might find it my wisest course to turn back unrecognized, unseen, and never look at Blythedale more. Had it been evening, I would have stolen softly to some lighted window of the old farmhouse, and peeped darkling in, to see all their well-known faces round the supper-board. Then, were there a vacant seat, I might noiselessly unclose the door, glide in, and take my place among them without a word. My entrance might be so quiet, my aspect so familiar, that they would forget how long I had been away, and suffer me to melt into the scene, as a wreath of vapour melts into a larger cloud. I dreaded a boisterous greeting. Beholding me at table, Zenobia, as a matter of course, would send me a cup of tea, and Hollingsworth fill my plate from the great dish of Pandowdy, and Priscilla, in her quiet way, would hand the cream, and others helped me to the bread and butter. Being one of them again, the knowledge of what had happened would come to me without a shock. For still, at every turn of my shifting fantasies, the thought stared me in the face that some evil thing had befallen us, or was ready to befall. 
Yielding to this ominous impression, I now turned aside into the woods, resolving to spy out the posture of the community as craftily as the wild Indian before he makes his onset. I would go wandering about the outskirts of the farm, and perhaps catching sight of a solitary acquaintance, would approach him amid the brown shadows of the trees, a kind of medium fit for spirits departed and revisitant like myself and entreat him to tell me how all things were the first living creature that i met was a partridge which sprung up beneath my feet and whirred away the next was a squirrel who chattered angrily at me from an overhanging bough i trod along by the dark sluggish river and remember pausing on the bank above one of its blackest and most placid pools, the very spot with the barkless stump of a tree aslantwise over the water is depicting itself to my fancy at this instant, and wondering how deep it was, and if any overladen soul had ever flung its weight of mortality in thither, and if it thus escaped the burden, or only made it heavier and perhaps the skeleton of the drowned wretch still lay beneath the inscrutable depth, clinging to some sunken log at the bottom with the gripe of its old despair. So slight, however, was the track of these gloomy ideas, that I soon forgot them in the contemplation of a brood of wild ducks which were floating on the river, and anon took flight, leaving each a bright streak over the black surface. By and by I came to my hermitage in the heart of the white pine tree, and clambering up into it sat down to rest. The grapes which I had watched throughout the summer now dangled around me in abundant clusters of the deepest purple, deliciously sweet to the taste, and though wild, yet free from that ungentle flavor which distinguishes nearly all our native and uncultivated grapes. Methought a wine might be pressed out of them, possessing a passionate zest, and endowed with a new kind of intoxicating quality, attended with such bacchanalian ecstasies, as the tamer grapes of Madeira, France, and the Rhine are inadequate to produce. And I longed to quaff a great goblet of it at that moment. While devouring the grapes, I looked on all sides out of the peepholes of my hermitage, and saw the farmhouse, the fields, and almost every part of our domain, but not a single human figure in the landscape. Some of the windows of the house were open, but with no more signs of life than in a dead man's unshut eyes. The barn door was ajar and swinging in the breeze. The big old dog, he was a relic of the former dynasty of the farm, that hardly ever stirred out of the yard, was nowhere to be seen. What, then, had become of all the fraternity and sisterhood? Curious to ascertain this point, I let myself down out of the tree, and, going to the edge of the wood, was glad to perceive our herd of cows chewing the cud or grazing not far off. I fancied by their manner that two or three of them recognized me, as indeed they ought, for I had milked them and been their chamberlain times without number but after staring me in the face a little while, they phlegmatically began grazing and chewing their cuds again. Then I grew foolishly angry at so cold a reception, and flung some rotten fragments of an old stump at these unsentimental cows. 
Skirting farther round the pasture, I heard voices and much laughter proceeding from the interior of the wood. Voices, male and feminine, laughter not only of fresh young throats, but the bass of grown people, as if solemn pipe-organs should pour out airs of merriment. Not a voice spoke, but I knew it better than my own. Not a laugh, but its cadences were familiar. The wood in this portion of it seemed as full of jollity as if Comus and his crew were holding their revels in one of its usually lonesome glades. Stealing onward as far as I durst, without hazard of discovery, I saw a concourse of strange figures beneath the overshadowing branches. They appeared and vanished and came again confusedly, with the streaks of sunlight glimmering down upon them. Among them was an Indian chief, with blanket, feathers, and war-paint, and uplifted tomahawk, and near him, looking fit to be his woodland bride, the goddess Diana, with the crescent on her head, and attended by our big lazy dog, in lack of any fleeter hound. Drawing an arrow from her quiver, she let it fly at a venture, and hit the very tree behind which I happened to be lurking. Another group consisted of a Bavarian broom-girl, a negro of the Jim Crow order, one or two foresters of the Middle Ages, a Kentucky woodsman in his trimmed hunting-shirt and deerskin leggings, and a shaker elder, quaint, demure, broad-brimmed, and square-skirted. Shepherds of Arcadia and allegoric figures from the Fairy Queen were oddly mixed up with these arm-in-arm arm or otherwise huddled together in strange discrepancy, stood grim Puritans, gay cavaliers, and revolutionary officers with three-cornered cocked hats and cues longer than their swords. A bright-complexioned, dark-haired, vivacious little gypsy, with a red shawl over her head, went from one group to another telling fortunes by palmistry, and Moll Pitcher, the renowned old witch of Lynn, broomstick in hand, showed herself prominently in the midst, as if announcing all these apparitions to be the offspring of her necromantic art. But Silas Foster, who leaned against a tree nearby, in his customary blue frock and smoking a short pipe, did more to disenchant the scene with his look of shrewd, acrid Yankee observation than twenty witches and necromancers could have done in the way of rendering it weird and fantastic. A little farther off, some old-fashioned skinkers and drawers, all with portentously red noses, were spreading a banquet on the leaf-strewn earth, while a horned and long-tailed gentleman, in whom I recognized the fiendish musician erst seen by Tam O'Shanter, tuned his fiddle, and summoned the whole motley rout to a dance, before partaking of the festal cheer. So they joined hands in a circle, whirling round so swiftly, so madly, and so merrily, in time and tune with the satanic music, that their separate incongruities were blended all together, and they became a kind of entanglement that went nigh to turn one's brain with merely looking at it. Anon they stopped all of a sudden, and staring at one another's figures, set up a roar of laughter, whereat a shower of the September leaves, which all day long had been hesitating whether to fall or no, were shaken off by the movement of the air, and came eddying down upon the revellers. 
then for lack of breath ensued a silence at the deepest point of which tickled by the oddity of surprising my grave associates in this masquerading trim i could not possibly refrain from a burst of laughter on my own separate account hush i heard the pretty gypsy fortune-teller say who is that laughing some profane intruder said the goddess diana i shall send an arrow through his heart or change him into a stag as i did actaeon if he peeps from behind the trees me take his scalp cried the indian chief brandishing his tomahawk and cutting a great caper in the air i'll root him in the earth with a spell that i have at my tongue's end squeaked moll pitcher and the green moss shall grow all over him before he gets free again the voice was miles coverdale's said the fiendish fiddler with a whisk of his tail and a toss of his horns my music has brought him hither he is always ready to dance to the devil's tune thus put on the right track they all recognized the voice at once and set up a simultaneous shout miles 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 coverdale where are you they cried zenobia queen zenobia here is one of your vassals lurking in the wood command him to approach and pay his duty the whole fantastic rabble forthwith streamed off in pursuit of me so that i was like a mad poet hunted by chimeras having fairly the start of them however i succeeded in making my escape and soon left their merriment and riot at a good distance in the rear its fainter tones assumed a kind of mournfulness and were finally lost in the hush and solemnity of the wood in my haste i stumbled over a heap of logs and sticks that had been cut for firewood a great while ago by some former possessor of the soil and piled up square in order to be carted or sledded away to the farmhouse but being forgotten they had lain there perhaps fifty years and possibly much longer until by the accumulation of moss and the leaves falling over them and decaying there from autumn to autumn a green mound was formed in which the softened outline of the woodpile was still perceptible in the fitful mood that then swayed my mind i found something strangely affecting in this simple circumstance i imagined the long-dead woodman and his long-dead wife and children coming out of their chill graves and essaying to make a fire with this heap of mossy fuel from this spot i strayed onward quite lost in reverie and neither knew nor cared whither i was going until a low soft well-remembered voice spoke at a little distance there is mr coverdale miles coverdale said another voice and its tones were very stern let him come forward then yes mr coverdale cried a woman's voice clear and melodious but just then with something unnatural in its chord you are welcome but you come half an hour too late and have missed a scene which you would have enjoyed i looked up and found myself nigh elliot's pulpit at the base of which sat hollingsworth with priscilla at his feet and zenobia standing before them End of chapter twenty four